Welcome to Gu Dao Jinxing, Walking the Timeless Way, a podcast that digs deeply into the ancient texts of Taoism to uncover timeless wisdom and discuss how to apply it to today's chaotic world. I'm Ian Felton, and I'm joined by my co-host, executive coach, David Wong. Good morning, David. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Yen. So I wanted to jump right in to today's session. We're going to talk about chapter 22 in Tao Te Ching, and I'd like to first hear about a walking the timeless way moment that you may have had recently. Well, I uh, watched a very, uh, very touching video um, in the uh, social media about a 95-year-old woman um, who just passed away in New York. And uh, she, uh, sh she's, you know, Chinese, and she was a doctor. And she was the, the one who exposed the, really, the man-made AIDS uh, epidemic uh, in China in the nineties. And can, can you tell us about that? Just cause I, I don't think people probably understand the background of that situation. Well, um, you know, the, uh, there was, uh, this, this person, uh, uh, uh her name is Gao Yaojie. And, uh, so she kind of at that time in the nineties, uh, she retired as a doctor. But, uh, but she found out that um, actually in her, uh, the villages where she grew up uh, in the central, almost like the, the heartland of China, uh, Henan province, there was a widespread of, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the uh, HIV AIDS, you know, virus. Uh, she couldn't make sense of it. And she, you know, saw a lot of little kids infected and the many villages in that part of the world uh, got infected. Families, you know, she was, you know, driven by her, I, I guess, her compassion. She thought, you know, she just, it's kind of very sad to see, you know, so many people dying. And um, so, you know, she thought, you know, life, we only had, had one life. So she's kind of a very persistently look into the matter and later on find out that it was actually uh, man-made in the sense that the local governments, you know, tried to make turn the blood transfusion as a business. And in that process, you know, the blood plasma and, uh, you know, because of the lack of sanitation and the use of needles and all that, that turning to a, a, you know, a pandemic uh, in that region. And she, uh, she you know, started to uh, expose it and, uh, and also writing books about it and use the money from the books to help those kids. Wow. Just greed at the core of the story. Well, that's the dark side. 
of things, you know, yeah. of this world. I think the side from her perspective, uh, you know, she just, she's so persistent. And she said, you know, you can choose to be silent, but you cannot tell lies. So mm -hmm. she kept on, at one time, actually, she was recognized nationally in China, uh, you know, for her, you know, uh, for her um, telling the truth. And, uh, you know, really, a lot of young people saw her as um, very, like as a hero. Mm -hmm. But as things happened, the local officials really felt like threatened because that's the kind of the dirty laundry, right? For mm -hmm. yeah, and uh, so they sent police, uh, you know, to almost like put her on a house arrest because they don't want her to keep on exposing mm -hmm. it. So she was uh, in the early, uh, I think, uh, 2007 or something, she was forced to go exile and uh, mm -hmm. came to the United States and has been living in South Harlem. And uh, she was taken care of by a professor in Columbia University, a China scholar. And uh, when I saw the video, uh, you know, I, you know, it's really a video taken of her in her crowded apartment. And uh, the last photo, you, you, you could see that her eyes were shining uh, and uh, like, like stars. Mm -hmm. And uh, that spirit uh, I saw in her picture and also there a couple of snapshots of her watering the plants because you know in her in her apartment you know she was still trying to uh, you know to write down the stories and share with the rest of the world but she really you know from the way she lives you know she uh, she loved plants so you know she was like watering plants. That's just one day before she passed away. So that was a moving together with the stories I just shared. And so she just had this simple act, um, I guess, on the the other side of the coin, her, her vir the virtue that she showed just the simple act of, I'm just going to not lie. I'm just going to say what I'm seeing. Yes, exactly. So that reminded me of a, you know, a verse in actually Tao Te Ching, like chapter 67. Mm -hmm. uh, there's uh, one verse saying, by compassion, one can be brave. I mean, she's really courageous, but that, cur that courage was driven by her deep, you know, compassion for people, for kids and you know, for ordinary people. Yeah, she just she saw this injustice being done to the villagers, and she could see that it wasn't an accident. That mm -hmm. protocols weren't being followed, sanitation was not being followed, and that mm -hmm. all these things were were being done. And she just spoke a simple truth: just you know, I, I can't be silent because if I'm silent 
all of these people are going to suffer. Yes, yes, exactly. So that was a walking the timeless way moment for me. Yeah, I love how you connected to that simple saying because I think that makes a lot of sense and and it's it's a tough thing to do, but I think that's generally how it works. We we put ourselves on the line when we know someone needs us to show up. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, we're going to keep going with this week's theme, which is chapter 22. And I was wondering if first you would read chapter 22 to us in, in the original text, and then I'll do a translation. Okay, great. 取则权,往则直,化则盈,必则兴。少则得,多则祸,是以圣人报一为天下事。不自见,故名,不自是,故章,不自罚,故有功,不自经,故长。夫为不争。古天下莫能与之争。古之所谓取则权者,其虚言哉,成全而归之。And again, just that, that rhythm and, and poetry coming through in your reading. Yes, yes. I'm going to read, today I'm going to read from probably my favorite, the, the Lin Yutang version out of the wisdom of Lao Tzu. To yield is to be preserved whole. To be bent is to become straight. To be hollow is to be filled. To be tattered is to be renewed. To be in want is to possess. To have plenty is to be confused. Therefore, the sage embraces the one and becomes a model of the world. He does not reveal himself and is therefore luminous. He does not justify himself and is therefore far-famed. He does not boast of himself and therefore people give him credit. He does not pride himself and is therefore chief among men. It is because he does not contend that no one in the world can contend against him. Is it not indeed true, as the ancients say, to yield is to be preserved whole. Thus he is preserved, and the world does him homage. Mm, That's a pretty good translation. It it was a tough call. There's some good ones out there, but yeah, that that one still feels pretty good to me. Mm-hmm. So in in this chapter, we're really seeing it's not just a literary device, but a, a philosophical device, and that's dialectics. And so just so that we can talk about this chapter in a 
through the lens of dialectics, I'm, I'm wondering if first, if you can talk about, kind of explain to our listeners about dialectics in general, and then also why they're so critical when we're thinking about existence. Mm. Well, you know, I was curious uh, about the the origin of it. So I, you know, did some research and uh, tried to find the root word for dialectics, you know. Oh, uh, awesome. Yeah, because, um, you know, I was very interested uh, in, um, not it was, but, you know, I am, and I have been very interested in all the uh, ancient Greek philosophers. You know, the, mm. I remember first time when I saw you know, dialectical method by Socrates. So I thought, oh, you know, because I also heard about uh, from Hegel, Hegel dialectics. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to make sense of, you know, exactly, you know, what's the, what, 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 what is it about? Actually, the word dialectics, uh, you know, came from uh, uh, the, a word in ancient Greece, which meant uh, conversation. So if you oh. talked about the dialogue, like a dialogue, right? This was really the Plato's dialogues. It's about the conversations, you know, uh, between, you know, people who hold different opinions and they, uh, they're talking back and forth to get to the truth of it. So that's the, you mean, yeah. You mean pe people used to do that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think, um, you know, people, uh, unlike nowadays, uh, we tend to uh, cancel out each other. <laughs> I guess we just uh, maybe are having fun of having the, the kind mm. of conversation because the that kind of tension and opposition, you know, is seen as maybe a, you know, interesting part of life. And together we kind of uh, almost like intellectually wrestle with each other. But mm. the, the mindset nowadays is, well, my idea is my brainchild. If you kill my idea or attack my idea, you're, you're killing me. You're attacking me. So it's quite different. It, it, it definitely sounds very different. And so, you know, I, I want to kind of understand a little bit more can can you kind of dig in maybe even a little bit deeper into dialectics and and how they um kind of their qualities how it works that sort of thing yeah i think you know if we talked about dialectics i think this concept you know starting from you know uh i would say even before uh uh you know, Socrates, you know, for example, the pre-Socratic philosopher, one of them is the Heraclitus, right? Uh, he was definitely a more dialectical thinker. You know, mm. if, you, if you just read, you know, you know, some of the uh, fragments, what we call fragments, it's just like sayings, little sayings uh, pieced together like fragments. Uh, you could see. And sometimes I wonder if he and Lao Tzu actually <laughs> talk with each other. And of course, wow. there's no evidence about that. But you can see uh, in different places, are maybe around a, a similar time period, you know, p 
people, human beings from different cultures and different parts of the world, you know, for whatever mysterious reasons, they they contemplated, you know, the similar things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would say that started from him and then to uh, Socrates, you know, who, you know, ran around in the marketplace in ancient Greece to just to question people and try to engage in that kind of a, uh, dialectical, you know, conversations. And then later on, I think the um, uh, Hegel definitely uh, made a lot of contribution, you know, his famous, you know, thesis, antithesis, and uh, synthesis, you know, tried to really capture the, the development or the change or the contradictions of opposing ideas throughout history. Uh, yeah. And is the point of dialectics to prove that one position is correct and the other position is incorrect? What's the purpose of dialectics? I think it's to uncover some kind of a deeper, deeper truth. Yeah. It's always very, um, I think that's how dialectic thinking uh, is usually done. Uh, For example, uh, I think a lot of times, you know, uh, people just see one side of things, right? They're getting mm-hmm. getting wedded to their idea and only see the side that they, they think it's true. What, uh, you know, what dialectic thinking is trying to do is to bring in uh, multiple perspectives and especially the opposing perspectives and kind of a wrestle with it and assess them and try to see if there's something uh, you know, in the middle or some kind of uh, uh, a synthesis of those two things and come up with a more robust solution to things. So it, it is sort of generative, but the, the process of that generation involves struggle. I also, I, I'm kind of connecting it to mm-hmm. psychotherapy where mm-hmm. in a two-person therapy, you have the perspective of the patient and then also the therapist's perspective. And the two of them are wrestling in the sense of your, your work. It, there's a term called working through mm-hmm. and, and you're just working through this, um, impasse. And it's not that you're, that the therapist is trying to prove that they're correct or that the patient is trying to prove that they're correct, but you have to have the two different perspectives to work through the impasse. Yes, that's the uh, a good uh, good example, and I think that captures the the uh, what you know dialectical uh, dynamics. Uh, I think that's the essence of it, and of course, depending on situations and the personalities, it can become very you know, very heated discussion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it seems like everyone at least have some kind of a shared view toward some kind of a deeper truth uh, to in order to productively engaged uh, in the conversation. But nowadays, I think the issue we're facing now, the challenge we are facing now uh, in our, in our world is, um, 
people start to uh, attack. Well, I think they tend to see their ideas and their identity uh, as one and the same thing. When they do that, it's becoming problematic. It's because it's like, you know, you take it too personally. Yeah, and that too personally, it seems like the missing ingredient is humility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it it does require a sense of humility. It's it's I I would say it's it's a combination of humility and confidence. It needs to be mm-hmm. both because if you want to really, uh, uh, well, let let me give you an example. Uh, I think the Chinese overall culture, uh, for whatever reason, maybe the influence of uh, of of uh, Laozi, uh, and and then later on because uh, Marx inherited some of the uh, idea dialectic thinking from Hegel. So when we grew up, uh, you know, we were encouraged to 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 look at the two sides uh, of things just like, you know, in, in, in our school, right? So I was kind of brought up and just not looking at just one side of things, but look at two sides or even many sides. Okay, so that's my thinking growing up in that Chinese culture. But when I came to the American culture, when I uh, came to Harvard, the first paper I wrote for my government course paper uh, the feedback I received from my professor was, oh, you know, you try to cover all kinds of things, one on the one hand, on the other hand, you are not supposed to write that way. You're supposed to advance your idea to the fullest. And I said, well, there are many things to life, right? So if I just do that, I, I'm not doing that honestly. Uh, but the professor said, well, in the academic world, you are supposed to find all kinds of evidence uh, to support your idea. And I said, what if I, you know, there are other opinions? Well, you just acknowledge them and then uh, you you have to acknowledge them toward the end of the paper. Like, do I want to go deeper? No, you don't have to. You just need to advance your idea. So that's the first cultural, academic, intellectual shock to me uh, when I tried to adapt to the American academic culture. But then later on, I think I find a strength in this culture because in China, I wish that more students could think for themselves and advanced and uh, uh, advance their idea through the research to make the best case possible confidently. I think they, because they were born in looking at things in so many different ways, sometimes uh, actually, it were turned into something uh, that maybe the, the authorities make full use of them, so they lose themselves. So over the years, between the two cultures, I try to bring the two things uh, uh, together. In other words, like I saw the advantage, I learned that, you know, from that paper on, I learned how to do that in the, you know, American academic world. But at the same time, as I grew older, I started also appreciate the old wisdom of Lao Tzu and, and try to bring them together. That's a dialectic in and of itself. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, yes, that's that's you know my cross culture journey. 
And so it's a it's a perfect example of how that struggle between and in some ways not even necessarily different positions, but you know definitely not the same. Where through this struggle of okay, well, first I need to be honest. I need to look at all of the evidence and all of the different mm -hmm. positions, but then also the position of well, I, I have to make an argument. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and then struggling back and forth between those things, and then finding your own strength. And okay, there's this deeper thing where it's like, yeah, I can acknowledge and really look at the broad perspectives and broad evidence, and still make a confident argument in you know my own way. Exactly. I, I think I still remember during that conversation. My professor at Harvard, you know, jokingly said, "You know, look at all these special interest groups and the lobbyists in Washington D.C. If they take your approach, they will never get a good deal." So mm -hmm. that's the sort of the art, which I think nowadays I I knew more about the like uh, the 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 Western culture, especially in the early stage of ancient Greece. I think that tension already there because there are a lot of sophists who went around because that was the Athian, you know, democracy. Mm -hmm. You know, people were trained to speak eloquently to make an argument. So the professionals at that time who are paid, uh, like a, a speaking uh, rhetoric consultants, uh, they, you know, they they basically teach you the art of how to make an argument. But at the same time, you know, people like Plato or Socrates, uh, who also had some kind of uh, art themselves, but they more emphasis their emphasis is more like uh, searching for the truth and find that Sophius mm -hmm. uh, very you know very cheap and a very uh, you know money driven. Yeah, that there there's this kind of lack of sincerity to them. They're they're just. Um, kind of, you know, kind of hired guns. Yeah, hire us to make a, a good right. argument for you, but don't necessarily believe in anything. Right, right. So get back to your point. I think it's um, it's more nuanced. In order to shed light to the truth, you do need to find the, the most e uh, effective ways of articulating it. So, uh, you know, studying how language is used uh, the the art of language is important, but if you rely too much on it, then you know you're. I think you're um, corrupting it. Uh, that's why Lao Tzu said, you know, let's be a almost like a unpolished uh, uh, block of wood sometimes, mm. because that preserves the integrity and the original color, so that we don't go that far. Yeah, I love how you put that, that if we get, it can be a trap when we focus too much on language, it can disconnect us from the the spiritual way of being that we're kind of aiming for with our pursuit of following Tao. Yeah. So to drill in, I mean, we're talking about language. Can we look at a piece of language in the original um, Hanza? and mm -hmm. um, look at this word, za. So if we're looking at the, the original Chinese language and za, 
is this character that's used to kind of create this pattern of dialectics in this chapter. Can, can you talk a little bit about that word and per, maybe particularly in the context of Lao Tzu's time and explain why that word is such a critical um, use in, in this, this chapter for, for the, for meaning? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm not the, an expert in uh, studying the origin of the language, but I di- again, I did yeah. some research about this word. Interestingly, this word was a, a, a was an old word. It can be traced back to the Western uh, Western Zhou Dynasty, very very mm-hmm. old. Um, so the word, if you just it, you know Chinese uh, writing uh, word uh, word is. Uh, it's almost like a picture writing, you know, like an ideogram. Mm-hmm. Yeah. ideogram. Mm-hmm. So this ideogram has the two parts, the left and the right. So the mm-hmm. left originally was a kind of a, a bronze, uh, you know, cauldron, you know, which is essentially a large, you know, cooking utensil that people use for, uh, you know, sacrificial rituals at that time. So that's the, the, the left-hand side. On the right-hand side, you see a lot of those uh, in other characters or other Chinese words, which is like a knife or sword, okay? So when you put these two things together, uh, the original meaning of zi is, um, it's like a carving on that, uh, you know, on that uh, uh, bronze vessel. Mm. Okay. Okay. So, because it's a carved into a bronze vessel, it's kind of, you know, just like the the phrase in, uh, in, in English, and like it's not cut in the in the stone, right? If you put carved in stone, or mm. that means it's stable. It's something you know you can pre- you, you, it will be mm-hmm. like preserved for a long time. It will stay there, like okay. So the derived meaning of the. Is standard law or rules. So if you look at some of the modern words in in China, like a guizhe, guizhe means like a, the rules of the game. Faze is like the regulations of the law. So mm-hmm. zhe is really the standard. What what standard? It's like a, the guiding principle uh, in its substantive meaning. Okay, but then as with a lot of the Chinese words, it has multiple meanings. So uh, the substantive meaning of zhe is what I, I, I just shared, but uh, it can be used as a conjunction. So in this context, in this chapter, it's used like as a conjunction indicating, you know, for example, the, you know, as a sequence of events or cause and effect. So before that word, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, let, let's uh, find an example in this chapter. Let's say the first three words, quan. So qu is like one circumstance. Mm-hmm. Zhe is, you know, because of that one circumstances, it leads to, you know, the quan, mm-hmm. the other circumstance. So that's yeah, how so it's composed. Yeah. Great. And, and so thanks for explaining that. That's, that's really cool. And so now that we've kind of uncovered 
how it's used and the importance of it. Can you maybe go through a few of these dialectics in this chapter and kind of help us make sense of them for, for, um, our, our listeners sake, you know, help us understand what it means, you know, to, to be straight first be crooked, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, well, uh, well, first of all, I have to say when I studied this chapter, I love, you know, all of these, like mm-hmm. it's so simple. But mm-hmm. it can, I feel like it, it just carries a lot of meaning. You can think so many examples. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. le- let's take one or two or three, you know, uh, yeah. uh, as an example. Let's start maybe from the first one, like okay. So first of all, you have to know the, the, the first kind of the original meaning of um in, in, in China, in Chinese, uh, can mean like a like a curve. It's not mm-hmm. a straight line. It's like a, maybe a a a, a, a cor- it's, it's like a curve. Okay. Okay. Um. So what that reminds me of, like when you look at how things happen, you know, the first thing I can think of is the circles or circular. Or cyclical, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in modern days, we tend to think a lot of things like the progress of our society, right? So it's like a straight line, right? Just A to B to C. It's more mm-hmm. linear. What I think what Lao Tzu is trying to convey here is that in real life, when you look at how the universe, how nature operates, a lot of time is three. It's not through the straight line mm-hmm. that things, you know, uh, can arrive at a certain state. It's through, let's say, ups and downs, the cycles. Not that as that straightforward as Mm-mm. as uh, uh, like, you know, direct. I think that three words, you know, even from that example can change our perspectives a lot because when we operate with the assumption that society is always upward, upward, it's the straight line and everything, we sometimes get very frustrated, right? Why it's not, why are we seeing all these cycles? We, we, why we're not progressive <laughs> all the time, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Just like to achieve, achieve that utopia or the nirvana, why there's like a back and forth. That's because of the chu. So mm. sometimes by chu, maybe we can even achieve things even more effectively because there's the tension uh, from you know embedded in that chu. Mm. That's just an example. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and it and it's it's um, certainly the way things work. I mean, that's that's why Lao Tzu's writing is so profound because it's the deep observation. It's not a intellectual exercise. It's the deep observation of nature and, and way ahead of his time in producing that sort of meaning. And, and so that's one 
example. What's another example, um, particularly from you know one of the examples in this chapter? Mm-hmm. Well, before uh, I move to a second example, uh, let me just yeah. uh, still uh, a sure. couple of thought on that Xu Zhequan. You know, when you look at nature, right, you see all kinds of different uh, species, different plants, let's say. Di- but sometimes you see the, all the giant trees because of the elements of the nature. Sometimes they are broken very easily after, let's mm. say, the hurricane or something, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, Chinese uh, in Chinese culture, uh, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on uh, uh, resilience, because China's history is full of, you know, disasters and, you know, very hard times, uh, including now, like economically. I think sometimes the culture teaches people to be resilient, as resilient as a, uh, like a bamboo. Because when you look at a bamboo, it bends, but it doesn't break. Just by bending, you're not breaking. If you're mm-hmm. like just too, like, you know, stiff and straight, and then the, the bad condition happens, uh, you know, from your surrounding environment, you pretty much, you do not have the uh, chance of surviving. So survival is as being as a resilient to, a, a, you know, it, that's how, you know, Chinese people are kind of taught, like say, uh, you need to, you, 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 can, you, you should bend, but do not break. A good example will be a bamboo, uh, you know, like mm-hmm. that. Uh, I think yeah. it, it kind of aligns with the modern, uh, let's say, psychology. Uh, you know better than anybody who does here is psychological flexibility actually fosters resilience. Totally. I, I, the two things that I would pull into that, uh, definitely psychological flexibility, which I'll talk about a little bit, but then drawing upon Chinese philosophy, uh, Taiji, same, mm. same sort of thing. It's, you know, everything is kind of curved and bent and soft and, uh, flexible. Mm-hmm. It's not a hard style like karate it's it's all about these curved angles and and bending like bamboo letting forces come in to that space and just turning them gently a diff- redirecting at a different direction bending like that bamboo that's an example and then definitely psychological flexibility so in psychological flexibility we're not getting caught up in our identity we're not getting caught up in fixating on the past or the future we're not getting caught up in all of these mental constructions we're we're being present we're letting time flow we're letting the moment flow we're letting our identity to be softer so mm-hmm. you know when, when people are very rigid and really identify with a particular identity, you know, as a professor or as a, you know, musician or, or whatever it is, they start losing the options that are available in the moment because they feel like 
they have to, you know, act in a way that supports this very particular identity. And, and that's just not flexible. And so people who don't really calcify those identities and let themselves just kind of be a human being, they can be a lot more adaptive. And it, and it doesn't mean to not be whole. I mean, kind of like this chapter is saying, you know, to be whole, you're also, you know, kind of, you know, n- not whole. And, and that's the whole point of that, which is that you know, <laughs> yeah. we're, to maintain your integrity, don't cling to these rigid identities and these these rigid mental constructs. I totally agree. I, I think that's, uh, yeah, I, I think that's how things to tend to work. I mean, I even think about Jan's like individuation process, right? So basically, that process is to be whole. Right. So we're talking about whole Chuan here. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the first part of that process, like, uh, you know, we're trying to uh, build that persona. Right. Try to sweep all the things uh, we dislike yes. into the, you know, the, the, the dark room. Right. right? Yep. Exactly. Right? So I think um, so that's kind of a straight line of thing, things. You know, I'm building my personnel. I'm building my character i'm building yeah. my personal brand to set up yeah. this image uh, that's all very you know direct and straight and also yes. very uh, goal oriented but yep. but mysteriously all those things that you dislike they don't disappear you know they no, just they don't they they just pop up in unexpected uh, moments so i think by being a little bit chu like being flexible and and being like uh uh, incorporating and acknowledging and being aware of that part, you actually end up like being more whole than trying to be somebody or something. Yeah, I, I love that that example. And so m- maybe just to dig in deeper so, into the more practical aspect of this, the first thing I'm wondering is, can you kind of critique or observe modern culture through this lens and kind of see, um, you know, the limitations that it brings and and how applying um, what we're talking about right now can can maybe reveal some of the problems with today's culture? Yeah. I think the first thing, the first word uh, I would use to categorize the modern culture is, it seems like it's amplifying or exaggerating some natural uh, tendencies that are already there. By Mm. that, I mean, you know, whether somebody is more direct or indirect. Somebody is more flexible or, you know, more, uh, you know, strong-minded, whatever you call them. It's all built into, you know, uh, our personalities, our individualities. In other words, when you just look around, just even before we talked about, you know, modern culture, 
everybody has a like little different like flavor, right? You can、mm-hmm. immediately tell just by interacting with different individuals, like what what kind of tendency they're leading to.、Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so in other words, you know,、uh, through evolutionary process, all these things seem to survive. So, in other words, they can be seen as adaptive in many ways, right? But again, there's always a danger when you go too far; it's becoming maladaptive, right? I think the modern culture seems to. Uh, for its own reasons, we can talk.、Um, you know, just in a moment, it turned or amplified these differences even bigger in a bigger system. That may, if we don't find a good solution out of it, may pose some danger. So that's kind of the key point. You know, I'm trying to make. Well, what's the danger? Give us some examples. What's the danger, and and you know, and what's the exaggeration? Like, give us some examples of that.、Mm-hmm. Well,、uh, you know, I, I think the danger is, as you pointed out earlier, is failure to see more options and possibilities. We could end up like adopting because of the system, right? The incentives. Adopting、uh, a very very homogeneous way of thinking, I think,、yeah. which is very against culture,、uh, nature. Our culture over the years, you know, kind of all all marching to a similar order. Although we are haven't been there yet, you can see some signs that a lot of times. Not only you can find McDonald's all over the world,、uh, right? You can see that people through you know Wall Street or Hollywood, we start to think,、uh, you know, a lot of similarities. Some people would argue that oh well, that may be the the power of the global culture.、Uh, I I would say maybe a little bit yes, but I also think there's a danger to it because that causes two problems. One is people lose their once we become so 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 similar,、hmm. people lose their unique sense of uniqueness about it. They start to question their, you know, they they, they start to see them as a cog of a big machine. So I you know I feel like there may be some. Impact on how they see themselves, and yeah, yeah, I think you. It, it brings up all kinds of, of problems. I think in the on the one part of it, when you're saying you know everybody thinking the same kind of a,、mm-hmm. a mono a mono culture of thinking, it it leads to authoritarianism, and in this country right now, we can see the vast majority of the people. Do understand that things are complicated, and there's nuance, and there's gray, and there's you know you have to negotiate and work through things. But then, on the extreme right and the extreme left, there's this intolerance where no everybody needs to think a certain way, 
and it's group thought. And if anybody thinks differently, there's all this anger and attack. And so when that monoculture arises, it does lend itself to authoritarianism because it becomes intolerant. It becomes intolerant of other ways of thinking. And, you know, that's kind of what's happened in, you know, the society where both the political groups have become illiberal in the sense at, at the extremes where they're not tolerant of other ways of thinking. You know, you either agree or, you know, you're going to be attacked. And so that's a problem, um, that kind of binary way of thinking and um, making people kind of, you know, you're going to browbeat them and bully them if, if you don't think like them. For um, There was a really interesting, it's really long, but The Economist had um, the former editor of the opinion um, team at the New York Times who gave a very lengthy explanation of, you know, how the New York Times went from kind of the beacon, beacon of liberalism to sort of this, you know, intolerant echo chamber mm -hmm. and how, and how quickly it happened and how, you know, it went in 10 years time from this place that was sort of, you know, shaped him and formed him and kind of going back to getting him to think like a real journalist to, you know, a, a place where diversity of opinion is, is not important, that it, it's actually about we need to take a very narrow stance and everybody needs to support that and other opinions actually need to be censored, you know, not brought to light, attacked, vilify anyone who brings them up. And I mean, that's exactly what has happened in, in the culture that, you know, what used to be, um, about, a a a a venue of ideas and working through things has really become this kind of illiberal authoritarianism at the extremes of, of, you know, right and left. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think the, when you think about this, uh, two other thoughts, you know, come to mind. One is the, uh, probably the, uh, survival for the media. We know over the years that the other, you know, social media and, you know, the uh, other channels, like including podcast, right? They diversify, they start to uh, really challenge the, the traditional monopoly of the traditional media. So I can imagine in that kind of a world for survival, uh, you know, the traditional media almost every media channel, because there are so many of them, they, they fight for existence, right? The best way to fight for existence is through emotions, because emotions sell. And the nuances like we are talking about is kind of a boring, boring in the middle, right? Because you're talking about gray, you know, there's no drama in it. 
So I think that's you know one part of it that the media itself, uh, for the lack of you know other sources of funding, as needs to consider how to you know exploit the, the human nature psychology for drama, you know to to survive. Uh, yeah. Rage bait. Rage bait's the word. You know, it's like if if we make rage bait, you know, get people really angry by, you know, make it making something a black and white issue, people are going to click on it, at, generate advertising dollars, or, you know, just fall in line and support the cause because we're going to make them very angry about something that maybe is is complicated. Right. Right. So so that's the the kind of the 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 business side of the media, but also look at the, the consumers or end users. I think the, uh, for a long time, you know, we live in a peaceful time period that there are no lack of new challenges, like realistically, right? So people are really like living very comfortable life. And sometimes if you don't motivate yourself, you know, to look deeper and to study, to engage yourself in meaningful activities like studying history or think about uh, creative things. I think most of the people, they just lack of stimulus. I think because that appetite, because otherwise they will fall into boredom. So they need to find things. So the demand and supply magically match to create the kind of environment we're in, which is, I think it's it's worrisome. But if we believe in Dow, we may be like the uh, because the Dow has the final ultimate uh, the driving force. So maybe we are pushed to an extreme, then everything starts to come back. So that's how <laughs> Dow works sometimes. Oh, always actually will help us in in the meantime while hopefully some of these broader trends mm. are, are reversing for people who want to apply dialectics in in their own life c- can you give us some practical examples of how to apply some of the things from this chapter yeah 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 before i delve into the uh you know specifics I would like to highlight the three, really the underlying uh, uh, principles of dialectical thinking that just by piecing together the things I've observed and I've learned and read about, I think the number one thing is um, we always, you know, just look at, as we discussed earlier, there are always different sides to the same thing. I mean, the the old story about the blind man, you know, touching the elephants is a is a metaphor for that, right? So if you just like, it's not just one side of things. It's you know many sides of things, and some of the sides of things seem to compose each other. I think just adopt adopt that mindset. Uh, you know, instead of like jumping to or holding on to that one side that at least to create a space for considering other perspectives or other aspects. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number two is human beings tend to, because we are uh, both a thinking animal 
and the sensory animal. So we tend to kind of, uh, you know, look, accept things at its, uh, at, at its uh, face value. So in other words, we do need to rely on our sense perceptions, right? Whether you look at it, you hear it, or you touch it, but go beneath the appearances and look at things, what's behind the interconnections, the driving force. So look beyond the surface is a part of dialectic thinking. The third principle is instead of just looking at this moment, you know, we're in a really like, let's say, I mean, really in a bad shape, but don't presume that it, it, it just stays that way. Things are happening. So you have to watch and look at, you know, maybe a year from now and 10 years from now. Uh, I, I would say that from a, both a, a good time and bad time perspective. Sometimes we are miserable, but we are not going to stay miserable the time. You know, all things come to pass. And sometimes we have good times. And that good time, that good party is not going to be forever. So those are the three things, uh, you know, I would say that really my understanding, you know, what that dialectic thinking is all about is like, really is to look at the unity of the opposites because the opposites, whether you like the other opposites or not, they're really forming the part of the whole, right? And the other thing is, you know, just like water, things is constantly like changing. You know, Heraclitus and Lao Tzu both said it a long time ago. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you uh, highlighting all of that because of, of how important it is. I mean, success and failure, um, weakness and strength, all, all those things are dialectical in, in nature. And if we understand that that's going to allow us to navigate life with a lot less friction. Yeah. Uh, so then along those principles, you know, maybe some of the daily things that can help us uh, to apply this kind of dialectic thinking. Uh, you know, I think on a daily life, all kinds of things happen to us. So being able to find the good in the bad and a look at the, you know, the blessing in disguise, I think is a good, pretty good mindset. So that involves dialectic thinking because when you think it's something that you don't want to happen to you, you know, we tend to be, you know, really get frustrated. But just taking a little step and see if there are some uh, positive that can come out of it, I think it's an example. Uh, the the yeah. old, um, I'm just jumping in real quick with the old story of the farmer whose son was thrown from the horse and broke his leg and how devastating it felt in the moment because, you know, it was a hard year for the crops and his son wasn't able to help him work. And he felt really devastated that he didn't see how he was going to get through it without him. And then, um, you know, war broke out and the military came through all the villages to conscript the young men to go fight in the war. And of course, 
his son had the broken leg and he wasn't conscripted and, you know, was able to stay there with him and, and heal. That's you know, just one example of that blessing in disguise. Exactly. That's a classic story to show us that, you know, this good and bad uh, that we perceive it can change very dynamically. Um, the second example would be less is more. The more, you know, research uh, has been done on successful people is they are not like pulled into so many things. They're very good at discerning what's important to them and invest their energy on it so that they can be, uh, you know, they can be really excellent at that. I think that has dialectic thinking into it because it's not a matter of how many things you do. It's it's like it, it it's a matter of whether you know this thing aligns with your own value, and you can bring the your whole self to it so that it can achieve a state of excellence. So that it, you know in itself is a yeah. I think there there's I remember reading really recently just how really successful people and successful meaning they accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. It, success doesn't mean society's definition of what's successful. It's, you know, I want to accomplish this goal. The, the people that are successful at achieving that, they what they actually do better than everybody else isn't the actual thing, it's that they're able to say no to so many distractions that most people are unwilling or unable to do. Exactly. So the really the content of that success is not as important as the fact that uh, you can embrace the oneness. So in other words, like in this chapter, there's a, a phrase called bao yi er tian xia shi. Bao yi means embrace the one. So the one, the, the way I understand it is that that one is your focal point. So you have to commit it to it and dedicate it to it. And from the very start to finish, no matter what your pursuit is, it's, whether it's wealth, you know, reputation, power, uh, or, you know, some social uh, benefits or just personal benefits, it's more important that you're focused on it and day in and day out dedicate to it. Uh, I, I think that, you know, over time, that kind of consistency, uh, you know, compounds and to, you know, produce uh, the desired effect. So that, that, that's, that's, I would say, a, a form of di dialectical thinking means meaning actually less is more. Well, David, I really appreciate your on this chapter. I learned a lot from talking with you, and I also hope our listeners did. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We make this podcast for you and is entirely listener-supported. If you find value in our discussions of Tao, please consider making a small donation at walkingthetimelessway.com. We also want to hear from you. Please write to us anytime via the website.